Good evening, you're listening to Three Moves Ahead. I'm your host this evening, Fraser Brown. I'm filling in for Rob Zachney, who is once again out of commission due to back pain. Sorry, Rob. Uh, I'm joined tonight by freelance writer Rowan Kaiser. He writes for IGN Ars Technica. Welcome to the show. It's good to be back. So we're talking about Age of Wonders 3 today, uh, a game we both reviewed and both of us liked it. Uh, but we feel we disagree strongly about how much we liked it. <laughs> so, Rowan, uh, why don't you start us out? Uh, what is Age of Wonders 3 and what's it bringing to the fantasy genre? Age of Wonders 3 is a fantasy strategy game. Um, it is the sequel to Age of Wonders 1, 2, and not 3, uh, Shadow Magic. <laughs> which were fairly popular in the early 2000s. Uh, they're, they're very much uh, Master of Magic descendant type of games um, with the uh, strategic layer where you play as a wizard researching spells and all and the, the tactical battles. I think the key difference between Age of Wonders and like a Fallen Enchantress or a or Master of Magic is that it's uh, it never says like you're playing on the whole world. They're all smaller scenarios. Um, and at least the initial games had a very strong campaign uh, that I thought was much more of the, the link scenarios were much more of the better way to play, where this game, I don't think that's entirely the case. But uh, Yeah, two campaigns, one of them which was kind of more of a tutorial, really, the elf one. Yeah, or the easier to get into, I'm not sure exactly, yeah. but uh, the, it definitely had a tutorial scenario at the start. It's it's also got I think the thing that I like about the series the most is that it has a sort of tragic Tolkien esque vibe, um, more the Silmarillion than the Lord of the Rings, where you have like the the elves trying to maintain their position as you know leaders of the world while humans just overrun everything, and then some of the elves turn to evil, and it's uh it's not usually about like you know an ancient evil from the past returns and. It really just kind of gets into all the sorts of things that the fantasy genre can do with different races and uh, different motivations. And it's got good music, and I think it's a very well done setting. And this third game captures a lot of that that the initial ones did. Yeah, because it's like a continuation. So you've got the elves and dark elves uniting. And they're just plain elves again, (laughs) versus the humans who are kind of like, I guess, if we were using Tolkien, uh, they're like the orcs, because they're all about industry, Uh, they've got giant drill tanks and things like that. Um, So it is two very starkly different campaigns. But I don't really get, I mean, you, you quite like the story behind the franchise, but I never really cared that much i always felt it was more about creating your own narrative it's less that i really liked the story and more that i really liked the tone that the story gave like i'm not sure i ever actually finished the campaign but it just sort of had the right kind of um elegiac feeling to it uh okay uh there's a, a sort of sadness behind all of it like everything beautiful is going to be destroyed anyway but you try to save what you can of it that kind of thing. Yeah, or simply conquer everything. Well, yes, but, um, but you know, in the, in the music and the sort of overall tone, it, it, it yeah. conveys that feeling, which I think is a good one for a fantasy strategy game to have. See, it captured the, the franchise's feeling, but it disappointed you a little bit. Yeah, um, as I said, it's, it's a game that switches between the strategic and tactical layers, and I always, 
always feel fairly iffy about that, um, at least in 4X strategy games. Um, with something like XCOM, I think it's great, but um, in a 4X strategy game, it's uh, it usually feels like one side is disappointing compared to the other, and that's usually the tactical side. Um, Master of Magic and Fallen Enchantress, you just go off to this like generic little map and slowly move your uh, little units toward one another and <laughs> you know just charge them into each other until somebody wins and it, there's there's not that much to it. Um, the thing about Age of Wonders three though is that I really like the tactical side of things. I thought the strategic side was lacking. The tactical side of the game is really fast-paced. It's got a whole lot of personality to it. Each of the maps, uh, even though they're you know semi-randomized, they've got like different little uh, uh, walls and obstacles and uh, a whole lot of personality to it. Um, so I like that side of things. But I thought that the strategic side was usually really boring, and that was a pretty grave disappointment. Especially because I think if you only get one side right, um, you really need to get the strategic side right because the tactical side can almost always be skipped, and it can be in this game. But So did you just feel like you didn't have as many options? Or like there wasn't, a very, there wasn't really a strong focus on economic management or really managing cities? Uh, so did you miss that? No, it's more that the, the options that were given were just so interchangeable. Like all the research and all the city building options, which like in the civilization sort of game, I'm used to those being like really big, interesting choices. Like whether you build a granary or a temple or whatever in your your city and civilization is like a big first choice to make until you have the money to just buy them all. But in this game, like everything takes like two turns to build, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah. And the research is mostly just a bunch of spells and occasionally a bunch of uh, occasionally new units but it's got a similar thing where there's a whole lot of it without a really clear kind of tree so i didn't really feel like i was getting the kind of strategic choices that make the strategic mode interesting i thought it was just like click on a bunch of things and your city will slowly get better and it did and uh it it more had the feel of a, uh, an RTS-style game, except it was way, way, way slower. Like, there was one of the campaign missions that I spent, like, three days on and never even finished. I just gave up <laughs> on it and switched over to the scenarios. It, it's just sort of a... You have to just kind of build and research everything, and then you can smash the enemies in your way. And that's um, that's good for... A, or it's good enough for a game that takes, you know, an hour to play, but... Um, for the slower-paced, turn-based game. I didn't. I don't feel like it did a very good job of that. But you liked it a lot more than I did, so... Yeah, I thought that... I mean, the, the things that you, you said were, are true. It does have... Like, it kind of, it's very fast when you're building things, and you don't feel like you're making massive, empire-changing decisions. But I think that's a symptom of it being more focused on getting you into these titanic clashes around built up cities and you know going over the walls and blowing things up it is more focused on the the tactical battles and the strategy kind of feeds into that so the options that you do have in the map after you've explored everything and you started expanding it's things like plunking down a fortress so you can control a, a path or create like a bottleneck that you can defend so it is all tied up into setting up these battles 
And, and I kind of feel that that's not, it hasn't really lost anything by doing that. It's just focusing on something that it sees as interesting. And I, I think it's nice to get a 4X game that isn't all about diplomacy or, um, you know, peaceful resolution or trying to be, like, you know, build culture ascension or build culture like in civ you know there are all these extra goals like from galactic civilizations to civilization 5 but this is all about focusing just on war and i think that was quite a novelty i think that that that's true when it works it's just that i found a few too many games especially on larger maps where the whole focus was still, as I said, kind of like an RTS where you like build as big as you can and then just hammer your enemy with overwhelming force that uh, made the tactical side of things and those Titanic battles seem much less relevant. Like I, I felt like I was spending a whole lot more time building, building those armies and slowly moving them, and then I would get into a position where, you know, the battle's largely irrelevant. Like, sometimes you'd run into a city where, you know, it's your four armies against their three armies yeah. inside the city, and that could be pretty great. But then it would be like you have three armies against one army in their city, so you auto-run it, but you've taken, like, an hour getting all those armies into place. Um, and so, like, I, you could do the tactical battle, but there's no real, no real advantage to that. Whereas, you know, when the battles are equal, they're really great, but it becomes a little too easy to have the battles be unequal and therefore not really worth playing. So do you think if it was maybe it took a little bit longer to raise the armies, do you think that would be an improvement? Or if they moved faster, if you could just like attach them to, you know, the stacks that already existed. Um, I know that when I previewed it, I requested rally points and they added those and those helped somewhat. Yeah. But... It just, I don't know, the tactical side just feels really slow to actually, you know, get everything together on the larger maps. And, like, the campaign, as I said, the second map is just massive. Or at least the elf campaign. I didn't do much of the human campaign. But you get to this map that it's like, there are, you know, 20 cities. Um, at least. And you like just slowly move through all of them and like I, I read the plot of it and it was like oh there's this human wizard who's in this area and he's trying to uh you know do something with magic and it's weird and you, we have to go stop him so seeing the size of the map and th that i was at peace with the other two factions i decided to just go for the human wizard and I went and I took him out and the scenario didn't end. It was like, okay, now clear out the other side, the other two factions. And I was like, come on. <laughs> I spent like three days on this and it destroyed like all my motivation to play the game. So I think it does shine a little bit more when you're playing scenarios or just on random yeah. maps. Because uh, then you can control so much. I got that motivation back when I started playing on some smaller random maps, like a, a medium-sized yeah. random map with six enemies that defaults to four. I, I found that was a pretty good sweet spot for not being stuck at uh, far too many, just spending far too much time on the strategic map. It actually sort of, it actually acted as that kind of conveyor belt in the the tactical combat that you said you said you wanted. Um, yeah. Now I have a question for you. Since you mm -hmm. say that it's refreshing to play a game that's focused on the combat entirely, how much of the Warlock games have you played? Yeah, a lot. 
because I've been playing two, uh, and I, I quite liked the first one as well. But I think two is a, a vast improvement. Yeah. Um, but that's very driven as well, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I found because it, it's like Civ Five, where you have the one unit per hex, so you have the sort of tactical layer on top of the strategic layer. Um, yeah. I don't feel that there's that much of that distinction between the um, two sides of the game, and therefore I don't, you know, get bored of the strategic layer, because if I get bored of that, then I get bored of the whole game, and that doesn't happen as much. But it, obviously, there are, you know, massive differences and things that, they, you know, you couldn't really replicate from Warlock 2 in, in something like Age of Wonders. Um, and what Warlock misses out, of course, is the actual combat isn't really it, it, it's hands off really you've positioned your units and then they just clash um there's not as much flexibility uh unlike the tactical battles in in age of wonders there's not quite as much um there isn't stuff like flanking and i don't think there's as much like poison attack and fire attack and stuff but yeah. um i mean you still get the the placement of the units and keeping your archers safe and all that kind of stuff that uh, I'd say you get enough of it, and it, it just feels faster to play and more interesting to play because of that. Yeah. Oh, another problem that the Age of Wonders campaign has is that you have like one main hero that you're playing in each scenario of the campaign. That hero can, if he, if he or she ever dies in combat, they'll be resurrected in like three turns in your capital city. But you, ha any other hero that you have. If they die, it's game over instantly. Well, no, not instantly. After the combat's over. So you could take over the city, but if your hero got a stray arrow in the eye, then it's game over. That was just happening to me constantly because you have like four different heroes in the scenario who can't die. And I think part of the good thing about Age of Wonders 3 is that the combat's really brutal. It's got kind of a total war feel to it where... It's very rare that you're going to be able to get out of a relatively evenly matched battle without major casualties. Except that as soon as you add an insta-fail to that, then that becomes horrible. Like, imagine if Rome Total War had a game <laughs> over if a general died. <laughs> be very short games. Uh, but that doesn't extend to, uh, to the other modes, fortunately. Yeah. Uh, you've got the leader who just respawns, but then the heroes, when they die, they're dead, but it's not game over. Right. Um, but having that objective in the campaign where you can't lose any of the heroes, it is a little bit annoying, because they can die very easily, yeah. especially early on. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the scenarios do have a thing where the, the price of hiring a hero goes up. Like, initially it's free, then it's 100 gold, then it goes up by 50 for every hero who shows up. So if you are losing heroes a lot, then you're probably not going to be able to, to afford many heroes. Um, but that's a, lot, that's a lot different from Game Over. Yeah. Uh, and eventually you start getting stronger units who are maybe not quite as good as the heroes, but they can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the heroes where the initial units are very flimsy. Yeah, there was some. I actually thought the the unit diversity was was one of my favorite things. Yeah. And when you've even got the different uh, race archetypes, where you've got uh, archers, and the different races all have different types of archers, but they're all actually quite different uh, units themselves with different special uh, bonuses and different costs. Yeah, the the 
example I gave in my review was that the like the Elven longbowmen I think are stronger and they cost a little more uh, because you know elves bows everyone likes those. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but if you have the goblins, theirs are poison darters or something like that. Um, they they you know bl- have little they blow little darts through uh, I forget what they're called tubes that you blow through. They're little blow pipes. And those don't do much physical damage at all, but they also do poison damage. I don't think any of the ar- other archers do poison damage on their own. So that's that's a really sort of neat way to diversify the goblins from the others. And they all sort of have that. Uh, the Draconians have like um, flame bombers who can do uh, area of effect damage. Uh, the Draconians are a sort of like lizard man dragon race that uh, is probably the only sort of i mean i wouldn't say necessarily unique but the only sort of rare fantasy race of the major ones in age of wonders the others are elves and dwarves and goblins and orcs and such although it does issue traditional fantasy by making all very egalitarian like you can any race can become any class which i had a lot of fun with yeah like little Uh, the little goblin crusaders are adorable Um, and I, I, I thought that kind of added a lot more replayability to very similar uh, setups. Like, even if you have two almost identical maps, they can play out quite differently, uh, or at least the experience is, is quite different, depending on what class and race combination you choose. Um, and your kind of spells and abilities and things like that. Because there's, there's a little, there's a hint of role-playing yeah. going on as well. There's a, a morality meter where you yes. can go between like pure good to pure evil and slightly good and regular good. Um, <laughs> and like you can cast spells that uh, change the terrain, and those are one of the fastest ways to change your uh, morality. Um, where like if you decide to make a terrain around one of your cities for humans more fertile because the humans, you know, they like grasslands for planting their cops, crops, then you get uh, positive morality for that. But if you like want your orcs or whatever to have swamps, then uh, the morality goes down for that. I don't really know what that does other than diplomacy, but it's kind of a, a cool sort of, as you said, role-playing aspect to it. Even the simple kind of decisions you have to make, they're, they're have, they have some consequences. Like you can, if you're sufficiently powerful and you, f- you see like uh, an NPC enemy just wandering around, you can attack and they can be scared and you can let them run off, which makes you more benevolent. Or you can just cut them down and you go into a tactical battle and it makes you evil. But if, you're, if you do the good choice, then they won't just vanish when they run away. They could come back and attack other units. So you might be like no, I didn't notice decide, that. you might decide to be a bit more pragmatic. I guess that explains why those groups started wandering around. You might just be letting them all live. Yeah. I, I'm almost always a good guy and when given that morality choice. But obviously you can balance it out by doing nice things while also hacking away at all of your enemies. Yeah, uh one of the other things that the game does is that the each city is based on the racial archetype they won't live together in harmony and so when you capture a new city you have the option to migrate it to uh, a race that you already have in your empire like if you know you're going up against all humans then this human city will be unhappy if you keep it as human so you can migrate it to you know 
your goblins or your orcs and have a much happier city, but that makes you evil to do that um, because, you know, it's genocide. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you also lose out on the uh, the units that that city might otherwise generate. Yeah. Because uh, I, I captured, like, every single dwarf city when I was playing my goblin dreadnought game. Uh, and even though I was fighting other dwarfs and thus the dwarfs were quite unhappy, I was able to build specific dwarf units, which some of them had strengths that my little goblin chums didn't have. Yeah. Uh, so I kind of just decided, right, I'm going to keep them for a little while and get these units. Uh, so there are strategic decisions that, that come into play uh, that, are, that might screw around with your morality meter. Yeah, um, if, if that's one of the good strategic decisions um that when you capture a city and you have to make that choice about how you want to integrate it into your empire or just burn it like that yeah that feels like a legitimate decision to make an interesting choice in Sid Meier's terms that i think a lot of mm -hmm. the strategic layer kind of lacks otherwise did you get into the because obviously you can construct your own cities you wander yeah. around the land and you, you pick places which might be quite good um did you ever really feel like you're controlling the map in, and actually making not just choices of where to put cities uh because it was a nice area but because it would have uh, give you a strategic advantage or did you just plunk them down wherever it was most fertile i think generally I found that the, the building of the cities was probably the worst part of the strategic layer. So I tried to, once I realized that I thought that, I started playing the uh, smaller scenarios where it was much more taking over cities than building them. Um, so no, I didn't really get to that l level of engagement with the game. Because I feel that does add more to the, the strategic element because it feels like you're actually manipulating the map a little bit more. It can, I just... I just feel like it's more work than uh, actually like the the level of engagement gave to me um, because like at a certain point I didn't see any reason not to just put a city next to every single piece of uh, every single resource that was mildly interesting if there were two resources close enough to one another like there's no reason not to have a city there maybe there is a reason not to have a city there i didn't encounter that but uh i didn't feel like there i was being i had any sort of control on my expansion like a civilization does where you know those cost money or or how warlock has like a limit that makes your people unhappy if you have too many too many cities that you're directly controlling where age of wonders three just seemed to have do as as many cities as you can you know just go for it all and that led to well, there are options like the fortresses because they expand your yeah. territory um but they they don't generate like units or additional costs or things like that they, they're more for uh guarding canyons and creating bottlenecks and things like that yeah and th those work to a certain extent but when the settlers cost like three turns to make and the builders that make those <laughs> fortresses cost two turns there's not really that much of a difference between like i don't see why i shouldn't stick a city there because that'll have walls as well as long as i build yeah. them and yeah so i i felt like that part of the game just lacked the sort of choice and i think that leads me to i'm not sure that i would call age of wonders 3 a 4x game I would say that it's got a feel that's a lot closer to a real-time strategy game, which does have a, like a, a StarCraft-style real-time strategy game, an RTS, a basecraft game. I don't know. Um, 
I don't mean like a paradox real time strategy game. Uh, yeah. I mean, the RTS that people think of. It has that sort of feel to it because battle tactics are so much more dominant over the strategic choices where the strategic choices are more just, you know, get as much as you can. So I feel like the city building aspect of it and the exploring the map and trying to find the best places to plop your cities and all that was sort of a distraction from what the game like really is. And I think once I sort of came to that conclusion and started doing the smaller scale scenarios and uh, playing the game in a way that was, you know, a faster game to play, uh, I got a lot more enjoyment out of it. But uh, Did you ever try the uh, battle pacing? Because they have like momentum sliders and things like that. No, I didn't even see Uh, that. Yeah, so you can choose like uh, adventure mode. Where it's more about exploring the world. And then there's the battle one, which sets you up immediately with a pretty decent city. Uh, I think two heroes and filled armies. Yeah, I thought you meant that the the sliders were for the individual battles. Yeah, I saw those. When you start a new game um, on a random map, uh, you can choose whether it's uh, adventure mode or normal, as you said. Um, I think there's like an empire mode or something like that. I ended up just doing normal on the smaller maps because those were small enough. Like you build one city and then you're you're just right in the thick of things, and that ended up working pretty well. Especially um, the neutral cities that would give you quests. Yeah. So like you run into a neutral city and they're like, "Hey, what's up? Uh, yeah, you can walk through our borders for some money." And then a few turns later, they'll say, uh, "If you clear out these bad guys who are attacking us, then we will join you, and you can get some like." abnormal cities like i got an undead one that could produce skeleton archers and they're dragon ones as well yeah i got a dragon one too uh that's in the second elf scenario but uh yeah that that adds a lot of flavor to the game and uh i don't know that it makes for an interesting strategic choice although i guess it can if you're like in the middle of the war and you have to cross half the map in order to get one of those quests um but it it adds personality and uh I'm for that. Yeah, I, I used the uh, the battle version uh, or the battle mode quite a bit because my favorite aspect was the the tactical combat, uh, and it would just be there'd be no messing around. You start at your city, and if you've chosen a small map with maybe only like two or three other opponents, within a few turns you're already clashing with with large armies as well. Uh, so it really throws you into the thick of it. Uh, and I think there might be quite a lot of people who would almost only play that mode, especially if they really just like the tactical side of things. Yeah. Um, and that does kind of throw out some of the, the elements that you weren't too uh, pleased with. Yeah, normal mode on a small map just led to that with a little more control over it. Although I didn't, not that I like spent a whole lot of time balancing my armies. I just, you know, chose the three most powerful units that I could. Uh, from my cities (laughs) if i had a gap of three in one of my hero stacks and let them go at it i also i don't really feel like the strategic mode sort of uh resource collection and management i don't know if that's good or if it just doesn't feel like it's there like i never felt like i really needed to go get more gold or i really needed to go get more mana or whatever it just felt like it was a thing that was there and i could use or not 
where you know you're playing a, a grand strategy game and i play like i was playing warlock 2 and you know you see a piece of iron next to some pumpkins and you know this is a good place for a city and i'm going to be able to get all the food that i need and in age of wonders it you can just click up click and line up all the cities and units that you want to build and when you have the gold they'll build automatically and won't even tell you if you don't have the gold like you don't get a pop-up saying you don't have the gold to build any units this turn it's just you know as soon as you get it it's there so that sort of led to an idea that it kind of didn't really make much of a difference i think it would if you're playing against aggressive enemies i mean you've got an army lined up in the queue, but yeah. you don't have any gold, so you're waiting, and then suddenly there's an army at your gates, knocking on the door. Uh, you might wish that you'd maybe cleared out that gold mine uh, a few <laughs> turns ago, and it was actually in your within your power, and yeah. you're generating more income. Yeah, I feel like that's partially true, but I also tend to feel more that it's just like, I don't tend to put a whole lot of units in defense in any of these games. Mm. Right. I tend to, you know, have my hero stacks moving around and hope that they can act as a sort of mobile defense. Uh, so uh, I always feel like it's my fault if a hero just shows up. Like, I don't, like, okay, I have one goblin poison dart blower here, and uh, he has two stacks, each led by a hero. Um, like, uh, the gold is not the issue there. The issue is my decision making. <laughs> So I, I kind of had a compulsion to just go to all these little nodes um, and fight the creatures there. Or occasionally you would actually get them to join your side, which was always quite fun. Um, Never had uh, that and happen? Then, yeah, yeah. If you, you, you'll, you have to fight first. And oh, then okay. if you win, you might get a, a monster that will join oh, you yeah, that you yeah, wouldn't yeah. otherwise be able to build. Um, I did have that happen. And I just I, I enjoyed being able to go up to this little mine or this farm and, and get in a, a, a quick battle. And because sometimes you would face quite unique enemies like cockatrices. Yeah. Which are basically giant chicken dragons. Yeah, they, <laughs> it does a really good job of having different varieties of fights. Yeah. Like I had an Eldritch Horror, which is like a level 5 monster with 100 hit points, just sitting on top of a mine next to my second city once. And I had to like decide, okay, am I going to try to take out this Cthulhu creature, or am I just going to ignore it and um, fight my enemies who are coming after this city? And, you know, that's very different from fighting the brigands in their little camps. And uh, maybe we should just talk about, like, the different things that make the tactical side work, because I feel like I fairly well covered the my issues with the strategic side. Yeah, well, I I feel one of the things, and because they're they're quite random, but it, they feel quite well designed. It, you've got a lot of objects cluttering the place up, which you have to actually navigate. Like things will block your field of view, so your archers might not be able to hit an enemy uh, because they're blocked by a big rock, or maybe a barn, or a statue of ice. Um, so it feels like the maps are very busy. They're like appropriate um, when you encounter a little group of bandits they have a you know a minor stockade around a small camp um or in in the ruins you have to navigate all these different pillars and uh obviously the cities have their massive walls and so on but uh just every sort of uh 
piece of geographical terrain has its own random map that feels appropriate and that helps it a lot in a way that a master of magic or a fallen enchantress just doesn't have you're just kind of on a blank map with like maybe one thing that gets in your way whereas this you have interesting things that constantly force navigation and and choice uh it reminds me of a total war game yes especially at the sieges yeah Except turn-based, but just the way that the tactical battles are so... I don't know if I want to say designed, but they're they're just... They, they feel intentional and designed in a way that is kind of impossible, which is impressive, given that they're, you know, <laughs> randomized or procedurally generated. And you'll find the creatures are, like, thematic for that area as well. Like, you've got dire penguins... <laughs> which were phenomenal, uh, and ice dragons when you're in the tundra or the icy areas. Um, and then when you move to, like, city control, uh, like, human-controlled areas, you'll get little bandits and brigands and things like that, uh, and lots of farms that you'll fight in. Uh, so it always kind of... Th- it feels like you are actually zooming in on where your units are on the larger map. Yeah, um... And there's a really wide variety of different fantasy units to go up against, some of which are very different in dangerous ways. Like if you go up against mechanical units, then uh, spirit magic and uh, poison magic, or whatever, however it's, it's phrased, poison, don't work, but fire still does, so hopefully you have fire units, and if you don't, then you might be screwed. There's a lot of that kind of balancing, and there's these flanking maneuvers that you can have if you're hitting an enemy anyway other than head-on. That I don't know if it does extra damage, but I think it makes it so that they can't counterattack. So there are all kinds of these little decisions that are in each of the combat modes. uh... And you've got to decide things like if you're going to go around a stockade, or if you're going to just charge through and take a turn to destroy it yeah um and also like archers if you don't move them or only move them a little bit will shoot three times and if you move them a medium amount they'll shoot twice and if you move them a bunch then they'll only shoot once and there are uh like range penalties where if you're five hexes away then they have a negative 50 percent chance or a negative 50 percent damage they only do half damage and so you kind of have to decide, all right, do I want to, like, is it worth it to fire once at full damage or twice at half damage, like, given the random numbers involved? Um, and if I move them closer, then are they going to get hit by the enemies? Because uh, all the units do a lot of damage, unless you're, like, you know, firing darts at heavily armored orcs or something. <laughs> but all the units theoretically potentially do a lot of damage so it's very easy to have a strong unit get kind of caught and hacked to pieces and you don't want to have that happen of course and the ai is very good at developing their own forces as well they don't just throw loads of rubbish units that'll get wiped out very easily they've got a good mix and often we'll just have a ridiculous amount of the most powerful units like it seems every time i'm fighting theocrats um they're the crazy fundamentalist ones they'll have giant metal they'll basically look like a church on wheels oh yeah those things fires out like holy magic um but because it's mechanical 
Yeah, it's the worst. So facing five of them in a battle is horrifying. Um, and the clashes can just get absurd. You can have giant war golems fighting like churches on wheels while flame tanks try and burn everyone. Yeah, uh, It becomes a bit ridiculous, really. Um, we talked a little bit about the diversity of units at the start of the game, but uh, those are just like there are different forms of based on the same archetype, like the each race is its own form of archers, but as you um, expand the cities, then you get the option to build more diverse units, like the elves have unicorn riders, um, or maybe it's just unicorns. No, I think it's unicorns riders. I think you get you, there's there's both. You can actually have unicorns. That I think have the unicorns are if you get like a them. fairy city. Oh, that's the one. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's the one. But the elves also have unicorn riders, and the unicorns can teleport <laughs> once a, once per combat. So that you get the diversity just of the units, and then you have the diversity of units from what class your hero is. I think there are four classes. There's the Theocrat, as you said, and the Dreadnought, who are the kind of the mechanical builders, and the Warlord, um, which is a straight-up fighter. There's a Sorcerer. Thief and Druid. There's actually quite a lot. Six classes, then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so... Uh, and each of them has their own, uh, own different special unit classes that you can research. And... Like that's another good strategic choice that you only get once. Like which side, which which kind of thing you want to play as, uh, or which class you want to play as, can affect the game a lot, as you said. And um, they've got a good diversity and a lot of personality. And uh, yeah, you just get that one choice at the beginning of the game that affects everything. I mean, I guess that's kind of normal, but it's just it's sort of frustrating to me that there are so many other little choices along the way that don't have that kind of meaning. But yeah, so and then each of those have their diverse units that can affect combat a lot. Like as you said, if you encounter a high-level dreadnought, then you're going to have nothing but mechanical units all over the map. And if you have an if you have an army that's based on you know magic, particularly spirit magic, then you can't do anything against those. But if you have fire magic, then you're in great shape. And of course, leaders can be developed over time to have extra defenses so if you're lacking something uh, you can kind of buff yourself and also gain powers to buff your allies as yeah. well there, there is sort of a rock paper scissors aspect to it i didn't get managed to get deep enough into it that that was like something i was considering a whole lot but i know it's there i guess with some of the druid powers i played as a druid a fair amount they, they have anti-mechanical uh spells that are were definitely good to research earlier so i did get into that somewhat but i think there, there there are a few issues with the way that they do you leveling up your hero and your leader um because at first it's quite it seems quite interesting because there's a very very long list um and it feels like you're going to have a lot of uh, abilities to explore different types of the same class so different types of dreadnoughts or different types of warlords but when you actually get into the tactical uh, combat, you only really notice the uh, active abilities, the new spells and things like that. A stat here or a stat there doesn't, it doesn't have like a tangible impact on the game. If, and it, it's a little bit boring, actually, when you're just adding one plus one here or there. It feels like it has more of an effect in an RPG, but not as much uh, in a game like this. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of the way the whole game is where they sort of mistaken an excess of choice for good choice. Like, I tend to feel the, the good model of having interesting choices everywhere is XCOM. I mean, some of the times, the like when you level up a character, the choices aren't all that interesting. But most of the time, like you have a fairly strong, like, how am I building this character idea that uh, you only get one option to take and the other option is gone forever if you don't take it. Whereas this just gives you that RPG pile where you can make a... You could theoretically do that if you're like... If you have a good enough grasp on the game systems, but sometimes it just feels like you know you're selecting things off a random uh, off of a random menu and you have no idea how they taste. And it doesn't really help that you've then got loads of units that don't have that freedom. Yeah, they do uh, level up though, which is yeah worth noting. So you you'll you'll have like elite pikemen and so on. But you don't. You have no choice when they do. You, you just like hover the mouse over and you see what those, see what those level up perks are. Yeah. So in an army of of like fifteen units, you've only got maybe one or two units that have gone through that process where you've been really involved in their development. So they're actually going to have a huge impact on the fight because there are far more units that you've not done anything like that with. Yeah. Uh, so it feels it does feel like yeah that's that's great that I have all this choice but it's it really doesn't tie into the game that much. Uh it, you do just kind of feel like you're adding just plus one here, plus one there uh and there's no real impact. Yeah, well you you said uh, that you played a bit of uh was it um Endless Legend? I I didn't actually get to play it. I just No, you you saw some I of I it. got I saw it and I talked with the developers. I have perhaps impossibly high standards for fantasy strategy games. Um, <laughs> you know, I've been a fantasy fan pretty much ever since I could read. And obviously I am a strategy gamer and I have always wanted like a good combination of those two. With historical games, I find them pretty easily. Uh, like Civilization, Crusader Kings 2, these are some of my favorite games. Um, but... I've always had issues with fantasy strategy games at some level. Master of Magic never really hooked me. I liked it. The original Age of Wonders games never really hooked me. Though I liked them. Fallen Enchantress I thought had a lot going for it, but couldn't like fall into it. Uh, that was a bad pun. I'm sorry about that. It was unintentional. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> As opposed to those good puns. <laughs> so, you know, I... I felt that a lot of it is that I'm very skeptical of the sort of strategic slash tactical mode that all these games have used uh, since Master of Magic and Heroes of Might and Magic. I should probably mention that one because that's the one that people love the most. And again, that's one that I've always been skeptical of. Um, so seeing seeing a game that just like questions that and questions a whole bunch of the assumptions that uh, the fantasy strategy games have uh, is interesting for me. Like, Warlock 2 doesn't have the division between the strategic and the tactical, and even though maybe I didn't play it as much as some of the others, I felt a lot more satisfied by it, or at least Warlock 1. I'm having technical issues preventing me from getting into Warlock 2, which is very disappointing, because it seems to fix a lot of Warlock 1's um, overall kind of they didn't think this through. Well, now they've thought it through. Um, 
Oh, maybe we can talk about that in a in a minute. Uh, yeah. So, like, w- the original Warlock was very satisfying for me, even though you know I didn't maybe didn't play the hell out of it, but I didn't have the feeling that something was wrong with this game that's preventing me from liking it. It was it was what it was. So there are all these assumptions that I think have gone into the fantasy strategy genre since Master of Magic that maybe aren't actually good assumptions, like the division between the strategic and the tactical. What Endless Legend does is, like, you have your little stacks of armies, but when they get into battle, they, like, go into, they, like, divide up on the world map that you're on. So the terrain that you've explored, all that now turns into the battleground and it's kind of a it's it's not the same as warlock 2 or civilization 5 where um it just there isn't a tactical layer it's just the tactical layer happens to be the one that you're on and this is done by the people did endless space and they did a really good job of having a light fast-paced tactical combat in that game where it's like you play cards about what how aggressive or how defensive you want to be in each phase of combat um so Endless Legends seem to have that sort of feel where it's faster paced and on the map that whose terrain you care about, uh, which is, you know, a good kind of assumption to break. Another big one is research. Like the whole tech tree idea makes a lot of sense in civilization because, you know, we view human progress as kind of a bunch of different progressing branching paths that reinteract with one another. And, you know, maybe there are some ideological or historical issues with that idea but it's an effective model for a video game but as soon as you get into speculative fiction the whole idea of the tree progressing branching tree does not really make as much sense because we don't have the emotional connection to the technologies or the spells in the case of a fantasy game because endless space had like four trees yeah I endless, think. endless space did not do a good job with that no. Uh, endless, and, and those technologies are also really fast to research. So it's like, why the mm-hmm. hell does it matter if I'm researching lasers three versus, um, you know, the this fourth different uh, uh, terraforming technology? Like, so I can, many terraforming ones. I, it was there was a whole tree just for terraforming. Yeah, I can research like each of these in two turns. So in four turns, I'll have them both anyway. So why does it really matter? <laughs> So when I talked to developers, they were like, yeah, people didn't really like that tree, so we decided to change that around. And I was like, you, you, guys, you guys are smart. You're, you're right. <laughs> you're listening and paying attention. So um, they divided it up into different ages where there are like 15 techs. I don't know if that's exactly right, but there are a few more than 10 technologies in each age. And once you research 10 of those technologies at the same cost that progresses from each number so the first one takes you know 50 research the next one takes 70 research you can research them in any order and as soon as you get 10 of them you can go to the next age a little bit like empire earth then i never played that but maybe oh no yeah yeah i think that's the one i'm thinking of yeah um because you progress through the different ages of of humanity and civilization yeah it, it doesn't it's not like a hugely surprising and shocking thing, but um, just the way that it seemed like they were both listening to what people had complained about with endless space and then what issues might have existed with uh, fantasy strategy games in the past. You know, that seems like a 
simple, creative way to get out of those problems. So, um, yeah, that, that game looks like it's questioning a lot of the assumptions that go into the genre, and uh, I'm really looking forward to trying that out. I don't know. There's, <laughs> I don't think we usually do previews and stuff on 3MA, so I don't want to talk about it too much. But what, what excited you about the uh, previews that Rob and I did for that one? Yeah, well, I mean, firstly, I quite I liked en- Endless Space, so I thought it would be interesting to see how a, a fantasy version uh, worked out. Um, it's quite because they've they've also done is it a roguelike as well? Yeah, Dungeon of the Endless. Yeah. yeah, they seem to be really going all out on on trying to create this massive franchise. Um, but uh, I, which I thought I thought it was quite interesting. They decided to go back to doing 4x, but maybe a little bit more like Master's Magic rather than uh, Galsave or something like that. So it was definitely the, the change in the setting. Now, how does the, the, the combat work? Because, um, I, I mean, I've obviously seen like the screenshots and some yeah, stuff it's like, like that. So, so you build your stacks of units like you do in Age of Wonders 3, but uh, when they get into a fight, they all like split up on the map. So then it turns into more of like a Civ Five type of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think you get to place them where you want them on the map, and then you do the endless space style card where you say like aggressive or whatever and then okay. they fight and then you know you do the next phase of combat i i didn't get a really good grasp of that but yeah it seems like a, a mix of the tactical and strategic in a in a pretty good way and especially a fast-paced way which is going back to age of wonders 3 i think one of the best things about the tactical mode is that it plays really fast you click on a unit and it moves and shoots and fires in, you know, a second or two. It doesn't, like, take a lot of time, like, loading up the animations and having them creak on their way. It's uh, it's very responsive. It's a, it's a good interface and a good uh, um, sort of reaction system to how the player makes their choices. Yeah. And that's not actually the case in the strategic mode. I found that there was a lot of lag between, like, clicking on where I wanted my army to be and the army started moving. So that even at a technical side of things, I felt like the tactical mode was significantly better designed than the strategic mode in Age of Wonders 3. This is sort of a problem with, you know, me hyping up Endless Legend now is that <laughs> I don't know that it's going to be responsive or anything like that. Like, you know, the map looked shiny and dense, so maybe it, it'll play really slowly and that'll ruin everything. But the ideas behind it seem pretty sound. Yeah, I thought... Um... But we we mentioned Warlock yeah. as well uh, earlier, which we've we've both played quite a bit of. Um, I thought things were very fast paced there. Yeah, it's a very quick game. I really like the um, lack of pretension that Warlock has. It's like you yeah. just build your units and send them out to fight and have a blast. Um, there's sort of a a sort of old fashioned feel to it where. They don't necessarily, it doesn't feel like they spent so long polishing it and caring about balance that uh, they just wanted you to get like cool fantasy units and throw them into combat. And if something's unbalanced, maybe they'll patch it later or whatever. But um, really, the whole point of the game is just to like build your units and conquer the world. And, you know, if if there's an issue later, I'm, I'm not describing this terribly well, but... <laughs> as as my friends on the Josh and Jay podcast would say, uh, it's just like Crackdown. Uh, 
they love crackdown but it's it's like that that like it doesn't feel like the sort of game that wants to constrain you like if you find something that breaks the game in an awesome way then go for it uh that's sort of what warlock feels like and that's a that's not something that's super common in games these days yeah it does seem like you can just get you can hire heroes because uh, they'll just wander up to your city and they might be insanely powerful far more powerful than anything your uh, enemies or the the random unaffiliated mages have um, and just go and have a lot of fun smashing cities but then eventually you come across a pack of angry werewolves <laughs> who are inexplicably the same size as your giant ogre hero um, and they'll get into it and suddenly your treasured unit is lost uh, and you've just swallowed up all of this territory you now can't defend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it might rebalance itself. Um, one of the things I liked about Warlock 2 compared to the original Warlock is the... In the original Warlock, when we talked about the, that on the podcast, we were like, the idea of having these different shards that you can go through the portals to, and they've all mm. got their own like terrain and personality. Like We liked that idea, but there was very little reason to actually do it other than be- that it was cool. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas that's all Warlock 2 is. Like, you just travel from shard to shard. And yeah. that both adds a huge amount of personality to the terrain. And I think it also makes a strategic... It should. I wasn't able... Because of the technical issues, like I said, I wasn't able to play, like, super deep into a game. But it should uh, help the strategic decision-making in that, like, now you have a very constrained sort of, like, battle realm or shard or whatever like you you've got like a world war one with entrenched armies on both sides of it fighting over that and like maybe you can try and go around that on another shard but you just have to bash your way through that and you know there are all these logic not logical i guess they would be logical checkpoints but uh choke points not checkpoints all these different choke points because these shards are so much smaller than the massive world of warlock uh warlock one um, so I really liked what they did there. Like that seemed to like kill two birds with one stone where, you know, the map was just too damn big and the shards weren't all that interesting. Now they're interesting and the maps are smaller, even though the map overall is still big. Yeah, you do get into these situations where you, cause obviously your, your end goal is to get to this, the, the world that you're originally from. Yeah. Uh, and you have to work your way down killing the enemy mages until you can actually get there. So there's like, it's not a direct path. You have to keep jumping through different gates that will take you to different shards. But there is, you're going in the right direction always. Um, but you might get to a, a gate that is within the territory of another mage. Like they've swallowed this gate up. So you can't w- walk through it without either becoming their ally or becoming their enemy. And so you'll end up getting into wars just so you can continue on your journey. Um, and it it just kind of inspires a lot more interactions with the NPC factions and stuff like that. They can be really sneaky and just grab uh, a, a portal that's pretty close to one of your cities. Um, and then they'll stop you being able to get through it and move your armies across, and then it becomes a logistical nightmare. Um so I, I think that it creates a lot of interesting options, and because you'll, you'll bugger off and try and explore the rest of the shard to try and find another gate, so you can take a different path uh, and go around that shard. Um, so it does encourage exploration a lot. Yeah, and uh, there's also 
in order to stop micromanagement, you have only a certain amount of cities that you can control, but you can switch any other city that you have to different forms. And the one of the most interesting of those is that you can switch to a fortress city, which doesn't actually like grow in the zone of control that it has, but it's super powerful at um, defending itself, got a lot of hit points and so on. So if you just like walk through a portal and drop a fortress city there immediately, like you can control that portal. Um, and that's got, uh, that's another thing where it's like, it's a fairly simple choice. That's good for both kind of the overall meta game and micromanagement and an interesting strategic choice on its own. Yeah. The, the city placement's pretty damn important. Uh, but the, what I found was quite interesting was how I saw, uh, the AI playing. Like I remember the first time I played it. Um, well, not the first time I had it myself, because the first time I played it was in a um, demonstration. Yeah. Thing. Um, so when I took it for a spin myself, I found I, I allied with um, Moralibus the Hat or something like yeah. that. They've all got really silly names. Um, so I immediately see all of his empire. And he's turned his entire home shard into just a, a network of cities. There's nothing that isn't controlled by a city um, and he was just chilling there uh, and for me it feels that's the antithesis of the of the game you're not really meant to plonk down cities everywhere it's like creating a, a kind of chain all the way from one uh, one shard to the final or the beginning shard to the the final shard rather than just swallowing up every single thing because that would just take ages um, so I, I'm not really sure about the AI uh, very much. It doesn't seem to play the game like you expect it to. Oh, I mean, that might depend on what uh, uh, environmental things. Like, I had one game where uh, the first city or the first um, first teleport I went through immediately, like three hexes away, was an ice queen, which has has okay. like 175 hit points and could one shot any of my units from Here. and uh from two hexes away she was uh she was a, a magic missile attack um so basically i could only like sneak by her a little tiny bit eventually i built a fortress city and started to try to pound her to try to just get rid of her like 15 hit points at a time which as she had 175 <laughs> took a while but um like that basically said that I had to be stuck on my home shard until I could start getting new cities on the other shard that I could sneak my sneak my guys to. But then I managed to ally with some of the AI and they had like four shards that they were fighting over. And it was just like crazy how much more they were had been able to expand, probably because they didn't have this ice queen unit destroying all of their units as soon as they went through their first teleporter so it's possible that that happened to mr hat that's true and there are other factors as well like um different uh races don't really like certain terrain yeah. or uh, uh geography basically if you've got a for a life-giving forest skeletons aren't gonna <laughs> like that because they don't really like life magic funnily enough um, so you don't really want to build an undead city in the middle of this verdant magical forest. Yeah, although you can get spells that'll you know switch the Change terrain. Change the terrain. Up. Yeah. Um, 
But the technical issue that I had, by the way, in case any of the listeners are struggling with Warlock 2 themselves, is that I think it was overheating my computer. Oh. Like, when I alt-tab out of this game, my, I can't, like, type things. Like, every other game that I have, except for Skyrim, I can alt-tab out and, like, tweet or write an email or something. This game is super duper slow. It takes like there three seconds of lag. I can like feel the heat coming from my computer, and it starts whirring. And eventually, when I was playing, like something in my computer would click and stop, and reset itself, and I would be back in Windows again. And then when I would click in Warlock, the screen would be black. I would have the cursor, but the screen would be black, and there's no way for me to get like the world map back. So, yeah. So I did notice the lag because I was uh, alt-tabbed while playing Warlock at one point, and I couldn't... I think I was in a uh, in chat uh, on PC Games N, and I, I couldn't really type anything, or at least it was coming up like 10 seconds after I typed yeah. it. Um, so, but I wasn't noticing any like overheating, and it didn't crash. Um, yeah. But I was noticing that, that, that lag. Yeah, I feel like there... I think this is actually the case with Warlock 1 as well, but I feel like there's something really inefficient in how it's done, and it was manifesting mm-hmm. in a way that uh, might have been breaking my computer. So <laughs> no more <laughs> Warlock 2 for me, unfortunately, because I really liked a lot of the ideas, but I never could yeah. get further than the early mid-game because of this. It's worth us saying, of course, that there's another four days until uh, it officially launches. Yeah. Um, so things like that might might end up being fixed. Fingers crossed. Yeah, I, I, I have been emailing their uh, PR guy, who's some jerk named Troy Goodfellow. <laughs> Goddamn <and>, Troy. <laughs> and trying to see if he can help me with this, uh, or if he can get me in touch with the developers about this. But I, I don't know. I feel like this might be just some sort of weird quirk of my computer that there might not be a ra- way around. So I'm unable to continue reviewing this but I, I it feels like you know this is a very worthwhile game it also adds several new factions which was a problem i had with the original warlock yeah the the original warlock had only three factions which were undead humans and monsters and this adds uh elves sports which are like troll dwarf things yeah like jotun type creatures yeah and uh um, plane striders, which are kind of a, uh, a a mix of a bunch of different factions. So that's that's a good thing as well. I feel like it's it it took a lot of the issues with the sort of I don't want to say necessarily like thrown together warlock, but maybe unexpectedly good for how small scale it was original warlock, and uh, it uh, seems to be working on fixing those things. So seeing that you're you've got such high standards for <laughs> fantasy uh fantasy strategy games. Um now obviously you've only seen a tiny bit of uh Endless Legend, but what do you think is doing what you want from the genre the most? Including Age of Wonders. Age of Wonders, I think it's if you're going to have the tactical combat, Age of Wonders does the tactical combat about as well as anything. Like maybe a total war real-time tactical combat would be a little bit more exciting but um Mm -hmm. creative assembly seem to be the only people who can really do that and they only get it right you know half the time anyway (laughs) Um, 
that's a good thing. I really like Fallen Enchantress's post-apocalyptic exploration vibe where the world's a really, really dangerous place to go exploring in. Um, Age of Wonders 3 does not really have that much at all. You can fairly easily avoid any any tremendously dangerous units. Where Fallen Enchantress, you know, you're wandering around this world that's still filled with giants and dragons that are, you know, they will hunt you down. They might come after your cities. Um, so I really like that aspect of Fallen Enchantress because that early game is usually my favorite part of a 4X game. You know, figuring out where your cities should go, figuring out how dangerous everything is. I always play Civ Five on Raging Barbarians. So the, yeah. the idea of the 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 dangerous <laughs> dangerous wilderness uh <laughs> that's that's a good thing let's see here i think a lot of the games are fairly good at getting the charm right heroes of might and magic especially the older ones the newer ones are don't quite have it but they they get the the sort of fantasy charm where you know why not why the hell not have armies of fairies fighting against um crazy bearded wizards and uh <laughs> They they sort of understand the ridiculousness of it and just embrace it and run with it. And the Might and Magic uh, role-playing games actually do that really well also. For whatever reason, that that whole franchise has sort of figured out a way to just say, what the hell, and go with it. And uh, that's charming. I like that. How about you? I don't I, I don't know what your standards are for this, but... Yeah, I mean, I kind of, I don't have standards per <laughs> se. I just, I, it's like when I just play one, there's an innate feeling that this is what I like. And I, I don't have a sort of uh, a list that 4X games or, or fantasy strategy needs what it needs to have. Yeah, I, um, I don't either. But it it's... works, it just works. Um, and I think Age of Wonders does that for me. Um and I think maybe I am just so into the, the tactical battles, but I feel that the strategy element of the, of the overworld uh, ties into that really quite nicely anyway. So it always feels like I'm thinking of tactics. And being able to get into those battles quickly is just is great. I can jump in to an Age of Wonders game and just play for like 20 minutes, and I can have a whole game, and I can have several battles uh, and, and win. Which is nice. <laughs> I, I, it feels like with Age of Wonders, it's really about finding what sort of you know map premise will work for you. Definitely, yeah. Because like a lot of my bitterness as it comes from trying to you know bash my way through the campaign, because that's how I remember the original Age of Wonders being like the campaigns were good. But uh, it sounds like you found like a really sweet spot with the scenarios that or the random maps that made you like it a lot and eventually i sort of got to that point but yeah because um, i didn't like the campaigns very much i yeah. mean i don't really see the point in the, of them i guess they're a great way to showcase the things that you can do uh and tie it all up with a narrative but i just like going out and doing my own things and exploring myself so once i got the you know the gist of the campaigns i was kind of like done with them i played a little bit more for, to see where the story was going but mainly i just wanted to jump into a random map and and mess around with the sliders creating one that's filled with ice and swamp <laughs> yeah um and that's got like it's hard to kind of judge the game as a whole because it's like once you once you find your sweet spot the game can be really good 
Um, yeah. And that, but you know, who knows how long that'll take someone. So it makes it, yeah. it, it especially because I managed to waste so much time on huge scenario maps and the, the campaign. Like, I don't want to say definitely go get this game and in a review that I do, but I also don't want to say this is like a bad game. It just took, took a lot longer and a lot more work to click with me than I would have expected. There's uh, an editor now as well, I believe, uh, that you can faff around with too. Like a fully-fledged map editor. Well, that's cool, especially if you could like create your own campaigns and fix yeah. those issues. Because <laughs> you could do that with, with 1 and 2, so yeah. uh, I've not really explored it. Um, but yeah, you can actually make your own overland maps, and uh, that's quite nice. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, so what fantasy strategy games have you liked? Age of Wonders three. That's why we're <laughs> talking about it. <laughs> that I um, I was like you. I really like Warlock too. I've played a lot more of it because it's not been uh, burning up my computer. <laughs> um, and I I've been uh, playing around because they've also got a sandbox mode. I'm not sure if you managed to get into that, which is a lot more like Warlock one. Um, or it's just the, like playing- the one map. Yeah, it's not shard-based or anything like that. Um, and you don't have like a direction to go in. You're just building and conquering. Um, and it was fun to play that, if only because it made me realize how much I like the new direction. Yeah. Uh, because it just felt quite quite boring. I mean, not I think boring is unfair. It's just a lot like Civilization, uh, which Civilization already does quite well. Uh, but just with magic. Um, so I, I like that you're able to actually have a, a journey from your home shard to the new one. Uh, and you can craft your own little narrative through the, the quests that you get. Just kind of choose your own adventure style quests. Yeah. Uh, which I quite liked. And they're all very tongue in cheek. Well, the whole, whole game is very tongue in cheek. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy with that so far. It's in the same world as the Majesty games, and um, I've yeah, always Ardania. liked their their sort of uh, ridiculous generic fantasy approach. But they get Sean Connery impersonators to do the narration. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they they just go all out with the crazy accents and the squeaky elf voices, and yeah, that's always seemed. Uh, I've 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 liked every game that I've played in that world. So that's Age of Wonders three, <laughs> and other things that we and also Warlock two, and Endless Legend, <laughs> and Fantasy Strategy as a whole. <laughs> talked about a lot. <laughs> that's what you get when you don't get Rob running the show. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I don't think either of us were prepared to, you know, be a strong facilitator. So you get us uh, just having a conversation, and I hope you like that conversation. Indeed. So I've been Fraser Brown. This has been Roy Kaiser. Thanks for listening. Have a good one. <laughs>